welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, costume designers, composers, stuntmen, stunt coordinators, and stunt women, let's not forget. Um, you name it, we talk to them. So, if you're listening right now, you're listening on AdrenalineRadio.com or you're watching our live stream on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page. And there's never anything thrilling about watching the live stream but for my never-ending changing tablescapes. And this week, if you're, if you're watching, you will see a celebration of Shark Week. That's right, it is Shark Week. And affectionately known to many as Movie Shark D, some of my personal shark friends are here on our table today in celebration of Shark Week. And how can I do a show kicking off Shark Week that <laughs> talking about a film that isn't about sharks? It's impossible. Uh, so in a moment, you're going to hear all about... Uh, some great shark films and from a wonderful director. Uh, but, you know, if you're watching, if you miss us, just remember, if you miss us, you can always catch rebroadcasts of the show. It becomes a podcast later on in the week. Pops up on Apple, iTunes, Spreaker, uh, Podbean. We're out there on all, the, on all kinds of different podcast platforms. Plus, Every episode of Behind the Lens you can find on BehindTheLensOnline.net 24-7. Uh, and it, I'm still waiting for confirmation, but it looks like we may be joining a radio station compliment down in New Orleans. So as soon as I get the final word on that, uh, that'll be another, another great, great way to find Behind the Lens. And I want to give a big shout out and thank you to our listeners in Italy. We have always had, and I'm so grateful, we have always had great European listeners to Behind the Lens. And just got word the other week that we're one of the higher ranked shows and podcasts uh, when we become podcast form in Italy. So thank you, Italian listeners. So... And I know we've got a big contingent down in Australia as well. Uh, and it's a good thing because we're going to be talking about an Australian director in a moment and a film that was shot off the coast of northern Queensland in Australia. But joining us at the midpoint of the show, to, it's all about sharks. Today is about sharks. We're going to kick off shortly hearing my exclusive interview with director Martin Wilson talking about Great White. Great White opens this Friday, and it is on demand. It is on digital. And thank you, Martin. Uh, this is something the publicist neglected to advise. The film will also be in limited theatrical release in the United States, in the United States, in various cities. And I'll cover those later on. Many of you, and yes, Philadelphia, after the great, after the great white just caught off Seaside Heights, in Jersey, I think a shark movie is exactly what you, what my brethren Philadelphians need to see. Uh, 
at midpoint of the show, Sasha Cullington, writer-director of her first feature film, Love Type D, will be joining us, um, wading into the shark-infested waters of dating. And it, po- it posits an interesting question. They're dumpers and dumpies. I think 90% of us have always have been at least one or the other. Maybe some leaning more in one category than the other. But we know what it feels like on both sides. But what if, what if it's your genes that are responsible? And it's not you. It's not because you pick your teeth with, with a nail file. Or because you don't wash your hair for two weeks. Or because you wear the same stupid thing all the time. Or you have a really bad laugh. But what if it's something genetic? So you don't have to take responsibility when, you, when you're a dumpy. Um, it's a cute movie. It's a fun movie. And I can't wait to talk to Sasha about it. But she'll be joining us at the midpoint of the show. But first, we're going to dive in with director Martin Wilson talking about Great White. Let me just put it bluntly, people. Great White is killer. This is, it's, it literally and figuratively, this is an incredible film. It's got great performances with, with a cast led by Katrina Bowden, joined by Aaron Jakobenko, Kimu Tsukakoshi, Tim Kano, and Takochi Tuhaka. It's really, it's a five-hander ensemble. And the premise is... Uh, Aaron's character of Charlie, Katrina's character of Zaz, they run a seaplane business, a tourist business. And they're taking their, and uh, Benny is Charlie's friend and assistant with the charter business. Michelle and Joji are tourists who have hired them. They set off on this trip, turns into a nightmare, plane goes down. They're in the ocean. They're stranded miles from shore. And guess what's out there? A very large, great white. This is the cinematography. Tony O'Loughlin is the cinematographer. I'm familiar with his work on films like Occupation and Drive Hard, uh, which starred John Cusack. Tony, between Tony and Martin, their visuals are stunning. Number one, off the shore of Queensland, We don't get to see that too often in films. It is breathtaking. You want to call your travel agent. You want to get a ticket. You want to head to Australia right now. And any kind of lockdowns be damned. You want to go there. It's beautiful. We have aerials from the seaplane looking down on an island and the the blue, blue water, the white sandy beach. A good portion of the film takes place in a, a, a life raft much like uh, Hitchcock's lifeboat uh, with your five people in there sniping at each other and not really getting along and trying to work towards survival. And then there's a good portion that is underwater. And the fact that Great White is produced by the same team behind uh, 47 Meters Down, uh, directed by Johannes Roberts, thrills me because... Johannes spent so much time uh, coming up with what you can put to, with his special effects people to for practical effects 
what you can throw into the water to make it look clouded, to make it look like sea life at a, at a lower depth. And thankfully, with the same producers, that kind of attention to detail, Martin was able to incorporate that into Great White to get great underwater uh, underwater shots that are beyond realism. So, without any further ado, I'll let you take a listen right now to my exclusive interview with director Martin Wilson talking Great White. Hi, Martin. Jamie, how are you? I am beyond excited to be talking to you about Great White. Outstanding, outstanding. I, this movie, it is killer. Um, literally, and, literally and figuratively. It is so much fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I just, I was gaga for most of this film. Awesome. Uh, because what you and your cinematographer, you and Tony O'Loughlin do, you give us, from the seaplane, we're getting aerials of this beautiful Queensland area, the coast, the water, the pristine blues and aquas, um, the underwater reefs, the little island, the cluster of green trees, the blue-blue sky, yellow sun, and then you bring us to eye level on the water, and we get yeah. that whole look, and that changes the whole look of the surface water. And then you take us underwater. It is it is a visual joy. You just want to go there, oh, even if there's you. a shark. Even if there's a shark. <laughs> I just want to go there. That's right. It yeah. is... Yeah, that was it. it. It's spectacular, Martin. Spectacular. Oh, thank you. Thank you, yeah. You know, what led you, because this is your first feature narrative debut, yeah. you're on the water, so you're dealing with Mother Nature, you're dealing with the elements, you're underwater, on top of the water, and in the air, all challenging aspects of filmmaking. Yeah. So what led you to Michael's script? And I'm a big fan of Michael, yeah. the Killer Elite was great, so you had Michael me with... He's, a, he's an absolute legend. He, um, yeah, he's done the killer elite tomorrow when the war began. There's so many, produced so many great movies. He's a very talented writer as well, but he's written this script, which, um, because I've been spending many years in TV commercials and trying to get my first, but I, I use this word, uh, gently bite at a feature film. <laughs> um, and, and just every moment, at the last moment, it would fall away or whatever, but... When uh, Michael wrote the script and he presented it to, to Michael Robertson and Neil Kingston, the producers, who'd known me for 20 years through TV commercials and been trying to work with me, we finally, we had the script which went to market and everywhere it resonated in the marketplace, which allowed the movie to be made. So when I jumped on board like crazy to get it done, because I'm a big preacher feature fan as a child, I, that, that's why I, I was bitten by the bug. You have to be to outlast because such a brutal industry. I, mm -hmm. uh, I, fell in, I fell in love with these movies, The Thing and Aliens and Fright Night and, of course, Jaws and all these films and filmmakers I loved. And then I knew I could 
I could use this in this type of movie because that's the type of movies I like to watch and it's the type of movies I like to see and make and enjoy and have fun with. And so we tried to, you know, like obviously we weren't trying to make Jaws. We were, we were trying to make a, a fun uh, man versus nature survival thriller. You know, a roller coaster ride where, where I used, you know, about the strip. What I loved was how I, we could use the environment, the landscape, the, the, the coastline of Australia, the beauty, the beguiling nature of this tropical mm-hmm. north as a character in the film because we only have got five characters. So how do you elevate that? Well, you... You bring in the environment, you bring in how beautiful and beguiling it was, trans, you, tra- you know, which is um, juxtaposed to the to the water, how beautiful the water is, but juxtaposed to what's lurking, this primal danger yep. underneath, you know what I mean, which you touched on. And if you can get that going, and the other thing I was looking at was the, was how, you know, how is Mother Nature, how is the, the ocean itself a character, and I was using... Uh, whale sounds, which are very sad and, and has a really ethereal sound, and that is the ocean hurting and crying out. And the sharks aren't in this film. I just didn't want them to be just these these monsters running around eating people. They had to be motivated. So the motivation is is that we've treated the the ocean so poorly over the years. That and, and you see Joji chuck in the, the plastic bottle. Is that is is everything is out of whack? Climate change and the and the shark feeding seasons and the sharks are just reacting how they would to adapt. So there's all these themes and nuances that we are trying to give the film a you know a real point of difference and get people excited about it. Well, you certainly succeed in so much of that. I love the juxtaposition of, of the the beautiful use of negative space that Tony does with the camera. Um, yeah. You know, number one, you're shooting 360. It's not just one, the camera fixed on one angle on this raft when they land in the water. It's moving. But, and by doing that, we're feeling the same disorientation that these survivors are feeling of where the heck are we, which direction are we going. And as night comes in, you embrace that darkness and we get that beautiful negative space where the dark of the night and the dark, inky, inky blackness of the ocean run together. Yeah. And all you have is a flashlight and a lantern and shadows getting created through that. And it, that just screams and it really ratchets up the tension and fear yeah. and suspicion. Close. You create great ambiguity with your characters, you. with Michelle, with Joji in particular, and it's not a spoiler yeah. to say, I wanted the shark to eat him as fast as possible. <laughs> Everyone does. And, and Benny, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the ambiguity of, is somebody sabotaging? Why is a woman on a, on a seaplane going to an island in the middle of an ocean wearing a silk blouse yeah. and pearls and carrying a Chanel ba- handbag? This is... Yeah. <laughs> There's something not yeah, right. All the great details. And the, the, your detail, your attention to detail is outstanding. So I'm curious about, you know, working with Tony to develop this visual tonal bandwidth and using yeah. that to prey on the ambiguity. Yeah, because it, it's all about, um, you know, what's lurking beneath and what's lurking within the characters on the raft. You know, like the, the way Hitchcock does that in, in lifeboat yep. is what we were, was an inspiration. And then using those water lapping 
cameras to go, what's going on? What, you know, what point of view? We're shifting the point of view between on the raft and off the raft yep. to the landscape, back to the characters, constantly moving that around in order to create a sense of tension and sense of, you know, when there is no action sequences going on and when the, the characters are interacting, you have to have, there's that, there's that thing always lurking, there's that, you know, using that, like the, the way they use that in one of my favourite movies, Jewel, the way Spielberg had Hitchcock on his shoulder talking to him, you know, like, how do we, how do we evoke this, this, with one character in Jewel, and I had five characters, like, how do you keep the tension going, you know, when the truck isn't there or when the shark isn't there, you know what I mean? Like, what do you do? And it's that visual style and that visual, I, I guess, um, technique that we're all using to try and maintain, maintain all of that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so glad you resonated, that, that resonated for you. And the other thing was that we, with Michelle, with uh, Kimmy's character, is the, is the pearl diving thing. That is all based on reality in Northern Australia. We had a great, a very uh, big pearling diving industry, and all the divers were Japanese. They were all wow. included in. And that, and that is who her grandfather is based on. And then we used that to create the wreck, which is a real wreck. And then I wanted to bring all that into the climax and, and bring the humans versus the sharks underwater into the shark's domain was the key there. Going underwater to the shark's domain, I haven't loved underwater shark film uh, this much since Johannes Roberts did 47 meters down because you very keen you know Johannes did such a great job underwater with that and in the tanks when he you know he had to have tanks for the girls in that film and and creating the the you know the plankton and and the cloud underwater Um, I I love Johannes dearly and he we went through the whole process how they did it and I'm watching this film, yeah. and it's like, oh, my God. That little detail adds so much. And the fact you have other fish swimming around, that the sharks are leaving alone. Yeah, that's it. We're trying to get all those those details there and everything to, to feel like we're in that, in that domain, in that very claustrophobic, very scary, dark domain mm-hmm. of sharks, you know. Yeah, and you talk about cla- you talk about claustrophobia. Okay, you and Tony going into the small cockpit of a seaplane. <laughs> you you really challenged him from a camera standpoint <laughs> here, Martin. <laughs> I did, I did challenge, uh, and and you do with all your uh, your key practitioners. You know, you challenge them. It was tough. I mean, that play was found on a farm. It was a it was a wreck with uh, with with rat poo all through it. We had to clean it all up and, and paint it all up and create it. You know, it's interesting. It's very you would never know that, but these little details that you go through to find that, that type of seaplane. <laughs> oh, I mean and it looked pristine. It looked fabulous. Yeah. But you know, the camera work, the dutching inside the inside the plane you don't use dutching a lot. You rely on the north-south-east-west directionals a lot in this film for where the camera's yeah. going. Yeah. You're not doing the, the power dutching, but in a few instances. No, no dutching is great, a great technique, and I, I do like to use it. 
a lot, uh, a lot, a lot, but sparingly. And I always loved the way they did it in the third man. I think mm. that's yes. where I remember those days. They did that. It was an awesome dungeon. Um, so yeah, like it used, again, using all these classic techniques in a certain sparing way, you know, to create a certain mood. Um, I love all that stuff. You know, how challenging was the casting of this film? Because you really had to get the right ensemble so that you could get those emotions just, you know, ratcheting up the tension and coming at each other with both fists. Yeah, casting is always challenging because, you know, it's everything about the performance, isn't it? You know, like they say, there's that famous saying, you know, performance is 100% casting or whatever, 90% casting, and we were... And you know what? I was super lucky because Katrina Bowden was, you know, all the cast was so embracing of what this movie was. You know, it's an action adventure film. It's set on water. You can't, for one moment, um, you know, um, appear that you don't know how to swim or don't know how to do that. They have to be, the characters are based here. They have to know all of that stuff, you know, and they have to be, appear, appear to be really dynamic. And they were. I mean, uh, Katrina just was very brave because she's, coming to a country, you know, where there is a lot of danger in the water, and she, she just, she embraced it uh, wholeheartedly, and of course she has a great emotional wheelhouse that she can draw on as an actor too, so she, you know, a very dynamic combination there, and then we have Aaron Jacobenko, I mean, he's, you know, I think he's got a huge feature, I mean, he's, he's very, very physically dynamic in the water, and he's mm-hmm. got a lot of training there, but he's also... He's a real ballast and a pivot in the early, in the early stages on the raft too because it's all around him and his strength as an actor there. You know, and he, he and uh, Katrina had a really nice chemistry going on, but you don't know that until they're, they're together, you know, so you always take a risk. And then we have Tim, Tim and Timmy um, playing the Asian couple, both interestingly have uh, Japanese fathers. Mm-hmm. ties back into what I was trying to do with the pearling. Um, the fascinating sort of pearling history that we have in Australia in the film. And of course, TK playing Benny from New Zealand is just a, he adds a little bit of humor and a little bit of depth um, there as well. Very, very fine actor. I and love challenging, but so good. I, it's good. I loved him. I love the character of Benny. But what Aaron, I yeah. think, is perfect because we, and this is something I love because we see character growth. You, you, Never lose sight of the characters and their stories and their motivations. And we see Charlie step things up and assume responsibility and lose some of his devil may care dreamer. I'm going to have this business. I'm going to. And it's. I love seeing that because you didn't just plop people down and say, okay, sharks, have 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 a frenzied feeding fest. That holds this film together. Because this is your first narrative feature, was there any kind of learning curve for you, Martin? Oh, just a huge learning curve, you know? I mean, yes, of course you throw yourself in the deep end, so to speak, but, like, I've learned something in pre, I've learned something in the shoot, I've learned something in the edit, I've learned something in the process now and the release. I mean, it's just insane. Um, But, you know, it always comes back to me is that filmmaking is a team game, and, you know, you've you got to um, work and play well with others. Um, you do that in every level of the production. You, you'll probably come out of it okay, you know, because it's really hard to make a good film. Um, so I come out of this filmmaking process and this project 
with a lot of new friends and that's that's an awesome experience for me and I'm just I can't wait to do it again basically well, I can't <laughs> wait for what I've learned. I can't wait for you to do it again I very quickly have to yeah. ask you though about Tim count and you, and your score your music because yeah. You did not go the route of something as distinctive as a John Williams Jaws theme. No. You kept your no, music we subtle. Deliberately do it. Yeah. So I, I was curious. Yeah, Tim, is, Tim is such a talent. Yeah, I mean, I love uh, the reason I love movies is, is the scores, and so we just wanted to make it a very sort of tense, eclectic score that you're not expecting in a shark film, and where we could we could use. Uh, the, the ocean and we could use very unusual sounds to to ratchet up the tension and then and, and have your, you know, still your classic action uh, sequences but scores for me are everything in films and Tim did an amazing job of escalating the tension and keeping, keeping the tension going when there wasn't those action sequences and keeping it subtle and keeping it sort of, you know, like unexpected, you know, and that's just it's hard to do. <laughs> He really, he really brings an almost Bernard Herrmann, Hitchcockian type of scoring yeah. to this film and with subtlety, and I really love that. Because like you, I love score. Score is oh. so important. Everything. Everything. Yeah, I, 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 that's, so, that's so great, Debbie, because yeah, I'm a huge Bernard Herrmann fan. It's just insanely good. Oh, um, Herrmann, Steiner. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, Martin, this has been such a thrill to get to talk to you about this film. Yeah. I can't, awesome. I can't wait for you to make another film so I can talk to you again. Yeah, well, we, you know, I just want the people to, to, you know, now the states are, are getting there, that people get to the cinema. This is what you, you well, everything you saw, all your details is amazing. And seeing it on the big screen, is, which we made it for, is just another experience. So... Hopefully everyone in the States on July 16th can get out and have some fun. Uh, but also, I know it's on Shutter as well. So, yeah, I'm hoping people embrace it and, and um, yeah, get behind the movie. It'd be awesome. Well, even though I've already seen it, I'm going to see it again. And because it's opening in theaters on my birthday weekend, I am going to go oh. watch Sharks on my birthday. Awesome. You're an absolute legend. So, <laughs> so cool. I can't have any, no better gift. So thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> Martin, right, thank no you so, so much. And you have a great day, and I'm going to have a great night. Are you going to write a review on the film at all? Or Actually, for this or? one, I'm also going to do a review because I love the film so much. Yeah, I'd love to see it. So, um, yeah, I'd love to. You really understood the film perfectly, so a review from you would be freaking amazing. That'll be helpful because the, uh, every now and again I'm popping it in the neck of the film and some of the people on IMDb. So anyone who really embraces the film, it's, it's really nice. Well, so that's cool. Don't I? This one I will be reviewing in addition to the interview feature. So, yay that's for good. sharks! Yay for sharks! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great night. You too. <laughs> Thanks, Martin. Bye bye. Uh, see ya. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. And that was Martin Wilson, director of Great White. Script is written by Michael Bowen, who is best known, I think, for The Killer Elite. And this is a film not to be missed. Um, it looks beautiful, as I mentioned at the top. Um, a big shout-out for, for Laurie Sylvester and the editor on this film. 
in maintaining and finding, working with Martin and finding that balance of tension. Um, really well done. And as you heard Martin and I talk about Tim Count's score, it's not what you would expect. And using this wonderful instrumentation and sounds of the sea and incorporating a whale song and whale sounds throughout uh, the sound and the scoring, it just all comes together so beautifully. And as you watch this film, you, feel, you are there with those five people on this raft in the dark. And you really, you get that same sense of where the heck are we? Um, no compass, no anything. They're relying on the current to try and figure out which direction they're even going in. So I can't encourage you highly enough um, for, because it is opening in some theaters in the United States. Let me give you that information. And thank you, Martin, for giving me that information. The film will be opening Friday the 16th. Obviously, on demand, available digitally. As Martin said, it will also be on Shutter. Is one of the places you'll find it online. Um, in theaters in the U.S., it'll be in New York, New York City. It'll be in Knoxville, Tennessee, Minneapolis, Chicago, Colorado Springs, Philly, Reno, Mankato, Minnesota. Okay, the only time I've ever heard Mankato mentioned anywhere is on Little House on the Prairie episodes. So this is pretty cool to have a shark film in Mankato. And in L.A., it'll be at the Lemley Glendale and at the Vineland Drive-In. So it's Shark Week. See a shark film. Now, there are also a couple other shark films that are happening. One isn't coming out until next week. Disney Plus, I don't know why you're doing this. Um, it's a Nat Geo doc playing with sharks, and it will be on Disney Plus. And it is the story of Valerie Taylor. Her work has been studying sharks. Uh, and the film incorporates, a, it's a beautiful documentary. It incorporates all this underwater archi archival footage, interviews with Valerie, uh, it's directed by Sally Aitken, who has two Emmy nominations to her credit. And it follows Valerie's career as a champion spearfisher to shark protector, shark conservationist. Fascinating, fascinating doc. That will be on Disney Plus on December, on July. Why do I keep saying December? I keep Hallmark. I hate you. Hallmark has me thinking Christmas in July, <laughs> July 23rd, Playing with the Sharks, will be on Disney+. Plus. Another documentary that is available tomorrow on Discovery+, Plus, streaming, streaming only, not Discovery TV channel, but, but streaming only on Discovery+, Plus, is a documentary from Eli Roth. And this is what I find really interesting, is that, Eli has shot this documentary, and it focuses on the environmental cause of saving sharks. I can't say too much about it. Everything is embargoed on it until tomorrow when it starts streaming. But I can encourage you to watch the documentary. First and foremost, because anything you know Eli Roth does, it's going to be done well. Second of all, for a man that is best known for horror 
and encouraging bloodshed in films. Just think of The Green Inferno as a prime example or Cabin Fever. But here he is with a documentary encouraging to conservation and protecting sharks. So that is available exclusively on Discovery Plus tomorrow. See that as well. And then there's tons of shark stuff on Discovery Channel itself. And of course it's being Shark Week is being celebrated on on the social media channels, but definitely come this Friday, go to the theater when where you can see Great White if you can't go to a theater, if it's not near you, get it on demand. Watch it digitally. Great White, you're going to love it. You are going to love it. All right. Well, I don't know where our guest is. So let's see what we want to do here. Looking to see if we've heard any word about a missing in action uh, director. So. Okay, haven't heard anything. Why don't we take a break, Pam? Let me see if I can find out uh, what's happened to our director of Love Type D. And uh, we'll be back either with Sasha Collington or another pre-recorded interview. Right, we are back. Welcome back to Behind the Lens. We now have Sasha Collington on the line. So let me bring Sasha on. Sasha, hello, hello. Oh, hello, hi. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. How about yourself? Just fine. Well, I have to tell you, Love Type D, what a film. What a film. <laughs> This, it is charming, it is sweet, it's funny, and you've got a young actor, Rory Stroud, who steals the entire film. Yeah, I think he is brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> he is brilliant. I, I love the premise of this film, that what if genetics are responsible for us having bad lives, bad love lives, be be you the dumpy or the dumper. I love this idea because everybody loves to shift blame everywhere but on themselves for something. So <laughs> I, I just cool. love the truth uh, that you have in there. But now you this started as a short film, did it not? Yes, it did actually. So it started, yeah, as, as yeah. opening piece. And you know. Uh, what made you decide to, you know, turn it into a feature film? Because this is a story that really does warrant a feature. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, so really, I don't know if there's a, uh, an echo. Hopefully there isn't. Um, but uh, really, I was interested in expanding something with the characters because I like the dynamic of the friendship between this grown woman and this 11-year-old boy. <laughs> <laughs> the whole idea, I, the humor comes from the fact you have this grown woman in her late 20s, maybe early 30s, and she is listening and taking love life advice from an 11-year-old boy. Um, granted, he may be yeah. a, a science prodigy, but still, 
(laughs) (laughs) And the setups that you have created for them meeting and engaging are so funny. You know, how, you know, how difficult was it or how long did it take you to put on your thinking cap and come up with all these different scenarios that you have that move this story along? Oh, thank you very much. Um, so I did spend quite a lot of time working things out. And, you know, I think it, it takes anyway, it takes a really long time to write a screenplay. And um, this, I sort of kept working on it as we went along. And even in the edit, you know, we did some extra filming. And so, yeah, it was definitely something I worked on um, until right at the end. <laughs> wow. Now, you shot this over a number of years, which begs the question, you're working with young Rory Stroud, 11 years old. Over the course of a few years, that's like prime growth spurt for a kid. Uh, yeah. You're completely right. Yeah. <laughs> how did you, na- not only in size, but his voice, how did you navigate that? It was actually something I was worried about a lot because... Obviously, his voice breaking would be a disaster because in the film, you know, it's supposed to be over the span of a few weeks. Um, as if he suddenly, yeah, had a high pitched voice, but deep to a deep voice in you know, the matter of days would seem way really strange. Um, yeah, so I used to kind of wake up in the middle of the night worrying about it. But somehow, yeah, we managed just about to get all his scenes shot. But we shot his scenes over the span of two years, and he did actually change in height. At that age, so we had to sort of stage things in such a way so that he seems the same size. Oh my god! But I'm glad you made it work. And to watch and to see the film, you'd never know. You know, you oh, good. You would never know. Um, so you really, quote unquote, covered that up really well. <laughs> you know, one one of the great elements of this film, um, and you don't and you don't normally think about this with a a quote-unquote rom-com or a non-traditional rom-com, your cinematography, not only is it light and bright, but you use color so wonderfully, and and you've, you've pumped up, so you've pumped things up, so there's, uh, there's some saturation here. But I love how you use yellow when it comes to our heroine, Frankie. Um, that yellow sweater that she wears so many times, it's like caution. Everything around Frankie is caution. Yellow <laughs> equals caution. Uh, and talk to me about developing your visual tonal bandwidth with your cinematographer, Christopher Schneider, because I think it just plays so lightly. But you do have that slight uptick in your saturation and some very specifically defining color moments. Yeah, we worked a lot on the costume. So, so Christopher's a great cinematographer, and we've worked together since we were at film school. And we definitely wanted it to have a very sort of colourful look, you know, so it really felt kind of, you know, of a heightened world in terms of colour. And we also wanted to create a dynamic whereby sometimes the visuals and what was happening, there was a bit of a, a mismatch, let's say, so sometimes, you know, something really sad is happening, like, you know, like, for example, the open scene where she's getting dumped in this restaurant <laughs> by a child messenger. We wanted it to, look, to also look, you know, very 
glossy and so that there was sometimes yeah um an interesting dynamic between visuals and what was happening well and and what you also do and i noticed this through the entire film tying into that with the events happening and the visuals is richard canavan's score you number one rare for a film like this it's an orchestral score but then he and it's primarily it's light but then there are some really interesting darker moments where we hear some string tremolo happening and the score adds a bit of whimsy even when it's not whimsical and it plays hand in hand with your visuals and i just love that oh thank you so much um yeah, I think Richard is fantastic and he was the perfect person to score this film because, you know, I agree with you that the orchestral score definitely lifts it and that's not always possible to have, you know, with an independent film, so we're really lucky. And I definitely wanted, like, I love films where there's a refrain, you know, that you remember afterwards and that, you know, refrains that go with particular characters, you know, all my favourite scores, you can sort of hum them afterwards. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, what I wanted with this, and I think yeah, Richard all brought it to another level. Oh, I mean, I, I love the score. But when you hear that, you know, and while you're watching, it just, it just fits so beautifully, even when you think it's counterintuitive to the lightness of the film. But, it, you know, it's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful package. But, <laughs> but you know, a big, a, a huge part of this package is your casting, are your characters, and really your your main characters of Frankie, uh, played by Maeve Darmody, and she's wonderful. Her deadpan comedic skill is amazing. And then, of course, we've got Rory as Wilbur, and then Oliver Farnworth playing Thomas, the dumper, and uh, Wilbur's older brother who commissions poor Wilbur to go break up with Frankie. Um watching this, you know, Frankie's desperation to reconnect with Thomas doesn't understand how he could dump her. Do any of us understand why we would get dumped? It, every, everybody in the world can relate to this film. I'm telling you, Sasha, everybody can relate. <laughs> um, but how difficult, how challenging was it to find this perfect ensemble? And particularly with Rory as Wilbur, because if you don't buy Wilbur, as well as his little friend and cohort, um, the film's going to fall apart. It the, Wilbur is the linchpin. Yeah, it was very challenging to get the right cast in place because I felt definitely that if the casting wasn't right, then you know, nothing else really works. Um, so, yeah, funny enough, uh, both Rory Stroud and May Dermody were like almost like the last, people that I saw and, and up till then I hadn't found the right person and I think in those instances you just have to keep going and going and going until you feel that you find a person that's perfect because otherwise it just won't work and especially with the relationship between them I knew that they had to, it had to feel believable their friendship so I spent a lot of time on the casting and you know you have these moments Usually it's the middle of the night, actually, where I have a casting idea. Um, and then you think, oh, what about this person? So I'd seen Maeve 
in another film, uh, Griffey Invisible. Um, and she was really funny. And so I remembered her and, and that's, you know, kind of how uh, we got in touch with her to play the role. No, she's wonderful. And watching the chemistry between her and Rory, it is hilarious. You can't help but laugh at this because here you have this very serious young man with his glasses and his little gray school uniform and you've got this grown woman pleading and throwing her hands in exasperation and it's like, what do I do? What do I do? And he never flinches. And it is... it. Everything, the heart and the humor is right there in Frankie and Wilbur. And they're fabulous together. Absolutely fabulous. Uh, One of my favorite screen pairings this year, I could tell you that much. Oh, that's great. I'm very happy to hear that. You know, because you shot this over a few years, you know, how did you as a filmmaker... How did you go about approaching that? So that, you know, because you're losing continuity, um, you know, possibly losing some of your crew. How did you navigate that as a director uh, with this film? It was definitely very challenging just to stay enthusiastic about it. Because I think you know you change during the course of time, and therefore, if you make a film over many years. You know, the you that begins is not the you that's there at the end. And so there were pluses and minuses to that. I think on a plus side, obviously, I, you know, you hope you're improving with time. <laughs> and so um, I felt that, you know, certain insights or certain kind of, you know, problem solving, actually, you know, I was able to solve problems as because of time passing and because of sort of learning more. I think on the challenge side, yeah, just feeling enthusiastic about the same idea is difficult over a long span of time. And we did have a lot of through turnover. But I think with the really key people, like, for example, Christopher Schneider, the cinematographer, like there are key people that kind of kept a continuity throughout. And I think that's really important. Mm. Well, going beyond the expanded timeline of shooting and getting this film done, you know, your prior, this is your first feature. Was yeah. there a learning curve for you as a director going, because you'd done shorts prior. Was there a, a noticeable learning curve for you going from shorts to feature in terms of your considerations and your thought processes? Or is it, it kind of hard to distinguish because you already had things broken up over the course of time? I think there definitely was a learning curve and also in terms of a different process. Just because I think, you know, I was very aware that you have to keep people engaged for a much longer period of time. And I think particularly around the middle, you know, um, and or second third of the film, you know, it's always difficult to keep that momentum. So I think one thing I tried really hard, you know, firstly that there wouldn't, be a predictability about what happens. I mean, of course, there are always going to be incredibly clever people who can predict <laughs> what might happen. But I wanted as far as possible uh, to try and not have it be apparent. From, you know, sometimes the film opens and you know how it's going to end. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't want that. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's much more challenging really just with in terms of the amount of time that you have to 
keep people guessing in a way or keep people entertained. That was one of the, yeah, challenges of, uh, of doing things. You know, I'm curious because, you know, you're the daughter, your dad, Pete Collington, um, anybody that knows children's literature knows who your dad is um, and some of his books. So I'm, I'm curious, be, with him being a children's author, did, did that impact your viewpoint at all in how you want the stories you want to tell? Um, because there is, there's, you have some childlike essences in Love Type D. So I'm curious, do you think that impacted you at all or in how you now, with the stories that you want to tell? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think definitely because when I was growing up, yeah, my dad did wordless children's books. And so I, a lot of the time I was, um, you know, kind of a character in some of the books. So, you know, when I was a little kid, I, you know, I'd dress up in the outfits and I would be in in the books, essentially. And um, so I think it definitely, that idea of telling a picture through stories, it's kind of what, you know, sparked my interest in film at the beginning. And yeah, I think it, you know, I think in terms of, I think the thing with children's book is that, like, I think it's both a bit like 80s classic comedies. Usually there's a sort of... Um, a thematic moral, you know, within them. And like some of my favourite 80s comedies, like you know, Groundhog Day and Big, there's a there's a thematic sort of lesson within it, and it's not didactic. It's just sort of kindly done in a way that it kind of says something about being human. Um, and so I suppose that was part of my intention, really, you know, with, you know, the premise that there would be also like a bit of a, a thematic in it and a, a message in it. Mm -hmm. And you definitely, you, you have a message in Love Type D, but you're not hitting anybody over the head with it. It's, you know, basically it's like at some point you have to grow up. <laughs> at some point, <laughs> some point you have to grow up and see life for what it is and see you for who you are. Um, but, you know, but seeing that balance that you have between Frankie and Wilbur, um, we have a child's pragmatic view and we have an adult somewhat childish fantasy view that, mm. that yes, you know, oh, I'm in love and I'm going to ride off on a white horse with Thomas because I love him so. And you have a child going, he doesn't want you. You're not going to have him. You cannot get him back. You should not have him back. It's and I love that reversal. That reversal um, that you bring into play with this one. Um, it adds fun. It adds an, ele an element of fun to Love Type D. Um, oh, thank you. I mean, do you uh, now? What's next for you? Do you have? Another film ready to go? Are you in the scripting stages? How is this working now? Yes, I'm working on a, a couple of new projects that are more episodic. Um, so, yeah, kind of, I, I'm interested in kind of moving into sort of more long form. So, yeah, I've been working on kind of all the mix of genres. Because one thing I liked about, you know, doing that was the fact that it's a romantic comedy, but it also you know, a little bit sometimes sending up romantic comedies. So it can be both those things at once. 
Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I wanted all of the series ideas I'm working on to kind of yeah play around with genres, but probably within the same tonal world. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next. Now you shot. I have to ask because I love the locations. I love. Um, the the buildings I love those the front doors you've got some incredible front doors here you, you shot this, <laughs> you shot this in Ireland and we shot it in London actually. in London it's absolutely uh, I just love some of the architecture and the visual elements that come into play um, it adds another just another element to that you know kind of fa- fantasy idea um, and it works so so well. Oh. oh, thank you so much. It, I put a lot of thought into the locations and Christopher Schneider and I went, you know, kind of looking at a lot of locations before we finalised the ones that made it to the film. So, you know, there was a lot of thought. So it's really nice to get when people know something. Oh, I mean, the one front door, Frankie's front door is gorgeous. That stained glass <laughs> on that front door is gorgeous. Well, now that begs the question, though. You had to worry about Wilbur, uh, about you know Rory growing over the course of filming. Did you encounter any of your chosen locations as no longer being available or cha- or you know being changed before you got to go shoot there? Oh, definitely. I mean, that happens all the time. You know, we'd find out. Oh, this. You know, so we had to. Yeah, I think Frankie's bedroom was actually shot. We had an original location we lost, and then we had to recreate it in various other locations, including a car park. Um, so yeah, I, I think this this is also the great thing of film in that you know there is an illusionary aspect where yeah, if you kind of pull the camera back, you can see. That yeah, lots of locations perhaps aren't exactly the same. Would shot between three places, and uh, and it's this like level of detail. I think it's hard on an independent, you know, film level to be able to match things. But we yeah, we tried really hard. Well, I I never I never would have known that you were you had to switch out and recreate locations. Everything is That's good. it's so seamlessly done, so seamlessly done. Oh, Sasha, I can't thank you enough for calling in so that we could spend some time talking about Love Type D. I just love this film. It, it, oh, great. It, it is just, it, I want to see it again. And I know it's available on uh, digital and VOD right now um, all over yes, the that's United right. States. It came out on Friday. It's been on demand, I think, yeah, since Friday. So, oh, my God. Well, Sasha, thank you so, so much. And I hope you'll come back on the show again with another project. Well, absolutely. I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, Sasha, thank you. And I can't wait to talk to you again. Thank you. Me too. Bye-bye. And that was Sasha Collington, talk, writer, director of Love Type D. But it is Shark Week. Watch Discovery Channel Friday. Go to the theater. Go on demand. Go to Shutter. Go digitally. Great White. You're going to love it. So that is all the time we have today. Until next week where hopefully, yes, we have, we have guests calling in next week too. Hopefully they'll call and call on time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 